Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. In this episode, I'm sharing a rebroadcast of my conversation with Dr. Michael Ward, the author of After Humanity. Since we're exploring the abolition of man by C.S. Lewis this month for reading in the good life, I thought it could be helpful. For anyone not familiar with Reading in the Good Life, it's our weekly meetup every Friday at noon Eastern for Perennial Meditations members. It's a casual space to connect virtually and have conversations on the art of living. I'll put a link in the show notes to learn more. On today's episode, my guest is Dr. Michael Ward the author of the new book, After Humanity, a guide to C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man. Michael is a senior research fellow at the University of Oxford and professor of apologetics at Houston Baptist University. You can learn more about Michael and his work at michaelward.net. In the conversation, Michael and I discuss C.S. Lewis and why he's an important figure today, Lewis's book, The Abolition of Man, The Objectivity of Value, The Problem of Subjectivism, How to Integrate Our Rational and Emotional Nature, and much more. Now, let's welcome the wise and gracious Michael Ward. Well, welcome to the show, Michael. You are a leading scholar of, of C.S. Lewis. Uh, I guess the first question is, when did you first encounter Lewis and what was it about him that connected with you? I first encountered C.S. Lewis when I was a kid, uh, a young boy, when my parents read the Narnia books to me. I'm the youngest of three boys and my two brothers and I would jump into our parents' bed on a Sunday morning and my mum would read us a chapter or two of uh, the latest Chronicle of Narnia, then we'd all get up and have breakfast and go to church. And those are some of my earliest memories. Um, and I suppose, you know, lots of people have that sort of experience being introduced to C.S. Lewis. But in my case, I I didn't just stop there. I, As soon as I was old enough to read them for myself, I did so, the, the, the Narnia Chronicles. And then I got into Lewis's other fiction and then his Christian apologetics. Then I came here to Oxford, where I'm speaking you speaking to you from. Um, to do my first degree in English and began to study Lewis's academic side because, of course, he was an English literary liter- literature professor. And um, I did a short undergraduate thesis on him for that degree. And as a result of that, once I graduated, was asked to do a bit of tutoring and lecturing. And as a result of that, was asked to do a bit more. <laughs> <laughs> I ended up living in Lewis's house, uh, the Kilns, for three years. I had his bedroom as my bedroom and his study as my study. And then when it came time for me to do my PhD, uh, C.S. Lewis was the obvious topic because I was already fairly expert in his writings. And um, so without ever really planning it, I've um, I've focused my entire academic career on um, on one man and his works. And w- without any great intentionality, um, just because I like his, his writings, um, have found myself becoming something of a an authority. And it's great. I, I, I'm not, I'm not, I have no regrets at all. It's been, a, it's been a blast. 
Well, after all of these decades, a, a deep dive throughout your really whole adult life into C.S. Lewis, is there anything that comes to mind that you're still curious about? If you could sit down for a cup of coffee, maybe a, a, a question or two that might be a head scratcher for you. Um, well, there's a lot I don't understand very well about C.S. Lewis, because not because it's inherently difficult, um, but just because I'm a bit stupid, <laughs> or, or at any rate, not very well educated in certain areas where Lewis himself was exceptionally well educated. So, for instance, my own classical education is weak, but Lewis was a great classicist and um, studied classics as his first degree. Um, Any time I come across a classicist with a, with an interest in C.S. Lewis, I, I say to them, please write a big fat book on Lewis and the classics and explain it all to the rest of us. Because I think that's an aspect of his writings which is really overlooked. For someone listening, maybe not as familiar with C.S. Lewis, how would you describe him and, and why is he still an important figure today? There are really three C.S. Lewis's. There's the the author of Narnia and, and his other famous fiction, like the Screwtape Letters. And that's probably the best known side of C.S. Lewis. Then there's the Christian apologist, the author of Mere Christianity, The Problem of Pain, books on love and prayer and miracles. And then there's the academic Lewis. And as I mentioned, he was, for most of his career, an English literature professor. He, he taught here at Oxford in that capacity for about 30 years, and he finished his career at Cambridge University as as the first professor there of medieval and Renaissance English. But before he was ever even in that department of academia, he was a he was a philosopher. The very first position he had teaching here at Oxford was in philosophy. He filled in for his old tutor um, in teaching ethics. And uh, that's a side of Lewis, which I think is is even less well known than his academic side as an English literary lit, literature man. Um, but he was a, a a competent philosopher, and he continued to take philosophy students even after he got his position in English. Um, and what we're going to be talking about principally today, I think, is is his most philosophical work, the abolition of man. Um, but I'll I'll leave that for for now to see what the next question is going to be. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll go there. What what would you say led Lewis to to write the the abolition of man that started out with a a few different lectures? But what was the driving force behind that? Well, yeah, the the immediate occasioning force was an invitation to speak to give the the 15th series of riddle memorial lectures at the University of Durham in the north of England. Um, and Lewis had to choose a subject, um, and he chose to discuss the objectivity of value and what might happen to us if we abandon the idea that value is objective. Um, but why did he decide to choose that topic? That's a, a more complicated question, and I think <clears throat> part of the answer, at least, is that um, Lewis himself, in his early years, in his teens and his twenties, 
had really grappled with that question personally. Um, he said that as a young man, he was his the two hemispheres of his mind were in sharpest contrast to each other. On the one hand, he he um, he saw a world full of atoms and evolution and military service, and on the other hand, he he saw a world of myth and romance and the many-islanded sea of poetry. Um, and these two things were in the sharpest contrast. He, he looked out on a world which was um, full of facts without one trace of feeling and full of feelings without one trace of truth or falsehood. And getting over that binary, getting over that polarity was the task of his late 20, late teens and early 20s. Um, and he began to see, no, that, that facts can be valuable uh, and values can be factual. And this fact-value distinction that is often bandied about um, in philosophical circles is really a false opposition. And so it's that that, he, that he's really trying to draw upon in the abolition of man. Um, so I think that's that's one of the personal autobiographical reasons behind it. Another is he uh, he had served as an officer in the in the British Army during the First World War, um, and he had been very nearly killed during the Great War. He'd seen men die. He he'd been exploded by a shell that fell in his trench and killed a man next to him and spat at him full of shrapnel parts of which he carried around in his body for years afterwards. And um, this is relevant to the abolition of man because in the abolition of man, Lewis talks about death for a good cause or death for one's country as the crucial test of the objectivity of value. For as long as you don't have to suffer for what you believe to be good or right, it's possible to suppose that it's just your own personal preference. It's just a subjective whim of yours that attaches value to this particular thing, whatever it may be. But as soon as you begin to suffer for it and realize that you can't wriggle out of it, or at any rate that you shouldn't wriggle out of it, then you begin to see that the thing is objectively valuable. If it was merely subjectively valuable, you, you'd change your estimation of the value, wouldn't you? So that you didn't have to suffer. Um, but the fact that we do suffer in service of the good and the right um, is is a helpful little reminder that value isn't merely a personal projection, um, and that if, for instance, you you turn tail and run away when thing when when the going gets tough, um, that's cowardice. That's not something morally admirable. Um, so anyway, in The Abolition of Man, Lewis talks about dolce et decorum est pro patria mori, the old Latin tag, it's sweet and seemly to die for one's country. And he keeps coming back to this as, as the crucial test of the objectivity of value. And so again, that's something which I think Lewis had, had tested on his own pulses as a young man uh, fighting in the Great War. And he lays out the book in these three chapters, uh, Men Without Chess, The Way, and The Abolition of Man. 
And as you referenced, uh, the, the men without chest is this visual between that polarity that you mentioned. So what does Lewis mean by the term men without chess? He presents a, a, a model of the human person, a philosophical model of the human person in three parts, the head, the chest, and the belly. And in the head, he argues, we see humanity's capacity for rationality, for reasoning, for logic, for abstraction. Um, this is the spiritual element. In the belly, we have passions, sentiments, emotions, appetites. This is the, the part of us which we share with the animal kingdom. The head we share with the angelic realm, the spiritual realm. The belly we share with the beasts. And this is, you know, touching upon that old definition of mankind as, as the rational animal. Um but it's not just enough to squidge rationality and animality together, um, you know, like oil and water next to each other, but not mixing. They need to be integrated, and the and the place where they are they are integrated is in the chest. The chest is the seat of magnanimity. Lewis says, magnanimity means literally great souled. Magna, great anima, soul. The uh, the angels have a rational soul. The beasts have a sensible soul. Humanity has a great soul, which is both rational and sensual. Um, and the capacity to to integrate those two aspects of ourself is located in the chest. But if you fail to integrate these two things, if indeed you you go back to that opposition I was talking about between facts and values, between between um, rationality and animality, between what moves us in the gut and what strikes us as as true in the head, um, then you're eradicating, or at any rate, you're weakening that aspect of you which is the distinctively human faculty. If you don't have a strong chest, you're likely to either evaporate upwards into a kind of false spirituality which forgets that you are an embodied creature. You're becoming like the angels, but not necessarily for good, because, of course, the devil is an angel, a fallen angel. So becoming purely rational is not necessarily advantageous. <laughs> or you devolve downwards into animality. You you allow your, your passions, your senses, your appetites to, to run the table. Only if you have a strong chest can you integrate these two things. Only if you have a strong chest can you be intelligently emotional, but emotionally intelligent. And so for Lewis, it's the chest which is the defining feature of mankind. Unite the angel and the animal, and you have the anthropological. Unite the human brain and the human belly and the human breast, and you have the human being. Was there any mention of, of which of these two, obviously the goal is, is the integration, but in terms of educating, you know, the gut or that sensual side or, or educating the, the rational side, I think of a, of a quote that is 
often attributed to Aristotle. I'm, I'm not sure if it's accurate or not, but uh, educating the mind without educating the heart is no education at all. Not exactly the same thing, but is there anything around educating, you know, the head and the in the gut as a path of of that integration? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, another name for the chest could be heart. Um, I have a section on that in my book. Um, the heart these days tends to carry with it a connotation of of sheer emotion. Um, so it's it's perhaps not a very good term to signify the integration of the head and the belly because it looks a little bit too much like just another name for the belly for feelings and emotions um but properly understood the heart is um is that point of connection between the two um so yes i don't know what else to say about that <laughs> <laughs> i i think of um Back in Greek philosophy, whether it's Aristotle or the Stoics, a quite a bit of time spent on educating and understanding the passions. And when we think about our formal education, it's often maybe just on that rational side. I don't know, that that original quote of educating the mind um, without educating the heart, or you could maybe replace that with the, with the gut. Um, you know, it seems that there's not as much focus on that what are your thoughts yeah i mean this is part of the the problem the large-scale background problem that lewis is i think tackling um implicitly in the abolition of man because i think he sees that over the last several hundred years really since the scientific revolution of the 17th and 18th centuries that that there has been a drift towards that the you know the privileging the valorizing of the head um and of rationality conceived in one under one particular paradigm um and so bringing back in the passions bringing back in the belly as a as a counterweight to this excessive rationality i think that's one of the, the larger strategies uh, underlying Lewis's whole project. Um, I have a quotation in my book from that great work of philosophy, After Virtue, by Alistair MacIntyre. Uh, After Virtue is, in some respects, I think, a, a sort of more, f more sophisticated and detailed version of the argument that Lewis makes in the abolition of man um and a quotation that i i have in my book from alistair mcintyre says this um talking about some of the great names of philosophy from the last several hundred years such as hume kant and kierkegaard alistair mcintyre says this just as hume seeks to found morality on the passions because his arguments have excluded the possibility of founding it on reason so Kant founds it on reason because his arguments 
have excluded the possibility of founding it on the passions. And Kierkegaard seeks to found morality on criterionless fundamental choice because of what he takes to be the compelling nature of the considerations which exclude both reason and passions. So you see there are three alternative, three various attempts to relate reason and passions. Um, Hume prefers passions, Kant prefers reason. Kierkegaard throws them both out, (laughs) as it were. Um, And Lewis says... We need we need to jump neither to the left nor to the right, and we certainly don't want to throw them both out. We just need to combine them. We need to integrate them, uh, unite the head and the belly, become a a complete human being, become a truly rational animal, and um, that's basically in in essence the uh, the positive argument of the abolition of man. That's the difficult aspects of of some of this this was a pretty challenging read read for me your your book was was really helpful to to go through it i'm i'm pretty new to to cs lewis beyond mere christianity could you kind of talk a little bit about polarity yeah i mean this uh idea of the center not being able to hold is a is of course a uh, puts us very much in mind of that classic poem by W.B. Yeats. Things fall apart, the centre cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Um, T.S. Eliot talked about hollow men. So uh, quite a lot of thinkers and writers in the 20th century were, I think, identifying this this problem of of the hollowing out of the center of our identity um, and various options have been suggested as as remedies but lewis is seems to me to be very centrist in the best best sense of the word um he's he's not wanting to fall off the left side of the horse having just fallen off the right side of the horse he's wanting to sit solidly in the saddle um and it's interesting how although in the abolition of man he is working at quite a high philosophical level um even in the narnia chronicles you see this same preoccupation of his with with the middle realm the 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 temperate moderate central region because narnia itself is just such a land um, if you look at the maps of Narnia, you see that in in the Narnia Chronicles, Lewis is reworking, albeit in a subtler way, a kind of allegorical topography that he first developed in in his book, The Pilgrim's Regress. And this is an avowed allegory, obviously modelled on The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. It was the first book Lewis wrote after he became a Christian. And in in that allegory, the hero has to travel a, a, a road going from east to west. And as long as he stays on the road, he's fine. But if he goes to the north of the road, the the countryside becomes rocky and sterile and barren and dusty and cold. And there in the north, 
he encounters pale men who are excessively cerebral. But when John goes to the south of the line, the countryside becomes warmer. Uh, eventually it becomes um, like a marsh. It, it's, it becomes unstoppably fertile and jungly. Um, and there in the southern part of the kingdom that he's journeying through, the people are darker skinned and they're more given over to the senses and the passions. So when you come to the Narnia Chronicles, you see that whole scheme being reworked, albeit, as I say, in a subtler form, because to the north of Narnia you have the the rocky place where the giants and the northern witches live, the witches who like to petrify people, turning them into stone or casting a, a, a perpetual winter over the, the landscape like the white witch does. And to the south of Narnia, you have a desert and this country called Kalaman, Kalor meaning heat. And there you have sensual, cruel people who who have, uh, you know, untrammeled passions and, and cruelties. Um, but Narnia is the middle region, which which manages to avoid the errors of both the north and the south, but also manages to integrate what is best about north and south, both both the rationality and the sensuality. That seems to be difficult for us to see. I, I think of the um, that Robert Frost poem of, of the two two roads, but it's that that middle path is always very difficult to see. What what do you think Lewis can help us in the way of, of seeing that that middle road that maybe not not so visible? Yes, two roads diverged in a yellow wood. Um, <laughs> and alas, a, a lot of the time we we conceptualize our whole situation uh, along those very lines. We we think we've got to go either to the left or to the right. Um, but as I say, that's a false opposition. That's not the choice we're faced with. Um, we need to be um, rational. We need to have clear ideas, but we also need to be sensual and we need to have blood in our veins mm. um and this idea of combining both the the clear light of reason and the thick blood of the passions is is a running theme throughout c.s lewis um you see it most notably perhaps in his last novel till we have faces um and you see it also in in the way that he he talks about religion that the true religion must speak to all parts of the human person. Uh, it must take, he says, a, a, an academic snob like me, he says, and, and tells me to go fasting to a mystery, to drink the blood of the lamb. Um, but it takes um, a pagan from, and tells that person to to obey an enlightened universal ethic. I have to be thick, he says, and the pagan has to be clear. But that thickness and that clarity combined in Christianity is, is what tells you that you have arrived at the true religion. Um, 
And he thinks that no other religion comes as close to combining those two elements as, as Christianity does. For the book in chapter two, Lewis decides to to title it The Way and, and does so after the Tao. Could you speak to the maybe reason be, behind that? Yeah, the Tao is this term from Chinese philosophy, Confucian philosophy, that Lewis uses to describe the um, the central fund or reservoir of of moral value, which all human beings find themselves drinking from, or to change the metaphor, it's the sort of ethical environment, the atmosphere, the moral atmosphere, which we all find ourselves breathing as human beings. And he deliberately goes all the way into Chinese terminology to emphasize the fact that he is indeed talking about something universal. It's This is for all human beings. It's not just for Westerners. It's not just for Christians. All human beings have a, have a basic awareness of the, the fundamental groundings of good and evil, of right and wrong. Uh, this is a testimony to the fact that all people have been created in the image of God. Um, we have been made with a conscience. St. Paul talks about this, doesn't he, in, the, in his letter to the Romans, where he talks about how even the Gentiles who are without the law are a law unto themselves, as their consciences now acquit them and now condemn them. Um, this is part of natural theology, that there's a certain amount that can be understood of, of God's goodness um, through the exercise of our natural faculties. We, we don't have to rely absolutely and solely on special revelation um, in the Christian understanding of things. There is also uh, common grace. There is uh, revelation to all people by virtue of the fact that we've all been created by the same creator God. Um, so that's why in The Abolition of Man, Lewis has an appendix in which he lists eight moral duties, um, eight moral laws, such as the duty of general beneficence, the duty of special beneficence, duty to ancestors and elders, duty to children and posterity, uh, the law of veracity, the law of magnanimity, and a couple of others. Um, and under each of these headings, he lists any number of citations from world cultures, different civilizations, different religious traditions. Um, he quotes Aboriginal Australian, Native American, ancient Babylonian, um, Judaism, Christianity, etc., etc., all of which testify to this broad central tradition of moral understanding which you can find down through history and across the globe um, obviously there's a fair degree of difference between different traditions and he doesn't pretend that that all different traditions say precisely the same things but uh, but there's a remarkable degree of overlap and unanimity on on these central points that and it's almost impossible he says to to imagine a culture in which it, people were praised and admired for 
abandoning their friends or throwing down their weapons in battle and, and deserting to the other side. Um, that's like saying that black is white and white is black. We just can't imagine of a, an ethical world in which that is the case. There are certain moral truths which can only be this way. In other words, they are axiomatic. They are, they are premises. We start from here. We assume the Tao... We assume this way of being moral, this, this basic fundamental way, the, these first principles of practical reason, or this natural law, if you want to use a more obviously Christian term. We assume all that as our starting point, and we, we can't get out of it. And if we try to get out of it, we will probably just end up selecting one or two favorite bits from the Tao and swelling them to madness in isolation from all the other elements. And that's nearly always what happens, he says, um, when people uh, turn against objective value. And I guess the opposite of that would be subjectivism. I think of uh, some strong points of, of view on that from Lewis. Uh, in addition to this book, the, the, um, the essay, The Poison of Subjectivism, what is subjectivism for somebody listening that may be not familiar? Subjectivism is essentially the idea that we as subjects um, decide what's right and wrong, what's good and evil, what is, and indeed what is ugly and beautiful. Um, we confer value on things that we perceive in the universe. We don't recognize value. That is to say, we don't see in in the out, outside world uh, objects or actions and acknowledge that they have a certain quality which merits a certain response from us and a certain description. Rather, we, we just make it up. Um, and this is why Lewis starts the book with a discussion of of an episode when the poet Coleridge was standing in front of a waterfall um, and he thought that the term sublime was was a useful descriptor of this grand, majestic waterfall. But someone else suggested that it was to be described as merely pretty. And um, Lewis starts with this as an example of of possible subjectivism. Is it sublime or is it merely pretty? Now, we can, we can argue about which term is more suitable, but we can only argue about which term is more suitable if, if we both acknowledge that there is something outside both of us that merits a certain response. If, if it's purely a subjective designation that we arrive at, then there's no point in even arguing about it. Because how could I possibly persuade you that my understanding of the thing was more correct than yours and, and vice versa? Um, so it's essential to all uh, rational dialogue, all human intercourse, all scientific inquiry that we acknowledge that the world has a, a value in itself which is objectively there and which we, between us, hopefully, can come to understand more and more closely. Um, 
Now, it's actually rather rather difficult to live in a thoroughgoing subjectivist way because almost inevitably there, there are going to be some things that, that you regard as, as really valuable. Um, you know, let's take some, uh, I don't know, some popular value like, you know, it's, it's bad to be sexist or it's bad to be racist. Um, now, is that an objective value or is it purely a personal preference that that you might happen to have having been raised in a certain culture um on the other hand there there are certain values that we may conveniently like to regard as subjective when it suits us um you know a little bit of dodging of our taxes say we don't need to be completely honest do we um so we we tend to be subjectivists when it suits us and objectivists when it doesn't. In other words, we are inconsistent. Um, but Lewis's whole point is to say that, no, we need to be consistent. And if, if um, you know, honesty with scientific data is an objective value, then so is conjugal fidelity. You know, you mustn't cheat on your wife any more than you should cheat on your, your scientific findings. Um because honesty is honesty is honesty. And so trying to live in a thoroughgoing subjectivist way is, is actually rather difficult. Um, but it's not theoretically impossible. And in the third chapter of Lewis's book, he, he tackles those who, who want to maintain in a very thoroughgoing way that value is merely subjective. And if that path is taken, he argues, then we're really on a slippery slope to disaster um, because, well, for all sorts of reasons. I've been talking long, long enough. Maybe you have another question. <laughs> <laughs> sure. No, it's great. This is really helpful. Um, it, it seems this is something that comes up not just in religious traditions that have a concern about that. I think of, of this TED talk that's really old now, probably 10, 15 years ago, from Sam Harris. He's a philosopher, neuroscientist, and he's an outspoken atheist, but he gives a TED talk on a, a similar case of the existence of moral expertise. He stated in it that we've convinced ourselves that every opinion has to count. Um, how do we come to grips with our opinion not necessarily counting in in certain areas like maybe it's easier in reference to art or something we're not we we don't have any necessarily expertise in but it may be more challenging applied to to morals for example uh say a bit more i'm not quite catching your drift um it seems to be a bit challenging like i'll, I'll give you an example from lewis he he comes out and says, I, I'm not necessarily fond of, of children, but I should be. He understands that that is the right thing to do, and he, and he should be. And he kind of has the humility to acknowledge that. But that can be pretty challenging to to come out and, and say, to, to, under, to realize that we're not necessarily an expert in this particular area or if it's just our opinion or particular area, like, like Lewis mentions there. Yeah, it can, it can be devastating, <laughs> <laughs> especially if you've been raised 
uh, in a very um, eccentric moral culture. Um, I mean, Lewis was giving these lectures during the Second World War. And um, imagine that you had been raised in Nazi Germany and you had been fed Nazi propaganda and you had been taught to think about the Jewish people in a certain way and you'd never heard any alternative perspective. Um, it's very natural and understandable to a certain extent that you would you would imbibe this attitude and and assume that it was right because that's all you'd ever been told and you'd never heard any alternative um so so to come to a a more accurate understanding um would require you to revise some of your most cherished assumptions and that can indeed be challenging can be very painful um you know we we see it in the in the history of the United States, don't we, on the question of race. Um, you know, a certain kind of racism was written into the the founding documents of the United States. And it wasn't until then, you know, the 1960s and the civil rights movement um, that le legal equality was finally established for all people, regardless of race. Um, and it takes takes a good deal of rethinking and thrashing out ideas. And yeah, and exposing oneself to alternative viewpoints and having the humility to realize that your own viewpoint needs to be sometimes corrected one needs to be corrigible in other words um so yeah that's that's difficult that requires humility but then what what's the alternative to to lock yourself up in a in an iron cage of certitude um I've got nothing to learn. I'm already perfect in every possible understanding. Um, well, we know what those kinds of people are like, they're, and they're not at all lovable. They're not at all attractive. It's you know that's a kind of malignant narcissism or solipsism, which which eventually borders on mental illness, um, because we you know in order to be mentally healthy, you need to accept the possibility of development and change. Um, there are two ways of solving the mystery of life, Lewis says in the preface to the Pilgrim's Regress, um, touching again on this distinction between the North and the South. Uh, you can be either a crustacean or a jellyfish. <laughs> you know, you can have an exoskeleton like a crab or a lobster, all hard and brittle on the outside um, and terribly tender and and weak on the inside. Or you can be a jellyfish and you, you can, you know, try to do without bones altogether. Um, now, a human being has a skeleton, but we also have flesh and blood. Um, and and so we need to be suitably hard where, where it, that's appropriate and suitably soft where that's appropriate. Um, you know, we need to have firm convictions and broad sympathies to use a phrase that my father is always fond of quoting, um, you know, we we must we must have a certain level of confidence in our own viewpoints. Yeah, um, we need to be able to respect ourselves, but also a certain degree of humility, which allows us to respect other viewpoints and learn from them. 
And more importantly, perhaps than, than either of those things, we need to have a, a recognition of the objectivity of the values out, out in the universe, which allows us to disagree peaceably with those who take a different view on things. Um, let me quote you another bit from um, Alistair McIntyre in his After Virtue. He says, um, in our present culture, differences of view have become incommensurable. You know, we can't measure one viewpoint against another because there's no objective standard, is there? Um, and for as long as your view and mine and the differences between us are considered unimportant, that, that incommensurability doesn't really matter much. And we, we can just naively celebrate difference and diversity as a good thing in and of itself. But sooner or later, when push comes to shove, when a really important moral issue presents itself, um, mere diversity reveals its inability to arbitrate between us. And this is where I am now quoting from Alistair McIntyre. He says, It's easy to understand, therefore, why protest becomes a distinctive moral feature of the modern age and why indignation is a predominant modern emotion. The self-assertive shrillness of protest arises because the facts of incommensurability ensure that protesters can never win an argument. The indignant self-righteousness of protest arises because the facts of incommensurability ensure equally that protesters can never lose an argument either. <laughs> Hence, protest is characteristically addressed to those who already share the protesters' premises. Protesters rarely have anyone else to talk to but themselves. This is not to say that protest cannot be effective. It's to say that it cannot be rationally effective and that its dominant modes of expression give evidence of a certain perhaps unconscious awareness of this. In other words, that's a rather, you know, meaty quotation from Alistair McIntyre, but to boil it down, what he's basically saying is that unless you believe in the objectivity of value, there can be no civil discourse. There can be no uh, public square. Any kind of discourse between people of competing viewpoints is purely about power. And, and so we arrive at the moral situation that I think, alas, we, we recognize all too readily in our post-truth 21st century world in which the, the public square is indeed evacuated of practical reason and what passes for discourse is really a, a kind of war zone in which political propagandists and commercial interests and private whims and animal instincts fight tooth and nail in a permanent free-for-all. That's I'm now quoting my own book. And uh, isn't that the truth of it? So I think, you know, Lewis's call for a, a recognition of the objectivity of value is, is a very, very, very timely call. And we urgently need to get back to that idea um, for the health of our own democracies. It seems to be an extremely important point. Um, I would love as a, as a way to close up and, and start to conclude the conversation, if you could say a bit more about objective value and the existence of subjectivity. 
Yes, that's a very good question because, of course, um, although subjectivism is a mistake, philosophically speaking, in Lewis's view, um, we are still subjects and we we do still look out on the world through our own eyes. Uh, we are inescapably subjects in that sense. And and we shouldn't be ashamed of that. One of the great um, one of the great achievements of 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 Western philosophy and indeed the Judeo Christian tradition generally is is the the high estimation of the individual that each individual has rights, each individual is deserving of a certain amount of respect. Um, and our individuality matters. You know, Lewis, as a Christian, believed that one of the reasons we have been created as individuals is that that we should discover our own unique perspective on the world and that peculiar aspect of divine goodness, truth and beauty, which only we can see and which we are called upon to communicate to every other person. And so we arrive at the idea of a of a of a symphony of an orchestra you know with with millions and millions and millions of different instrumentalists each playing his own instrument but symphonically not cacoph not without not in a cacophony but in a symphony uh, we're each enriching the whole because we are each unique um but although we're unique we're also uh, bound to one another through ties of blood and society and faith and tradition and culture and all these other aspects which which are more communal and not individual in other words we all need to be playing the same music even if we're all playing it in our own instrument so there needs to be a, an interplay, a dynamic tension between our, our subjectivity and our recognition of objective value. We, we mustn't you know, evacuate ourselves as individuals of, of all value whatsoever and say you know, the subject has no value whatsoever. The subject does have value, but in dynamic tension with, with objective value. Well, this has been great, Michael. I, I really appreciate it. And that's a great way to wrap up. Um, where could people go to to learn more about you and your work? I have a website, michaelward.net, www.michaelward.net. And you can find out there all about me and my writings and speakings and various doings. And um, if you want to find out more about this particular book, The Abolition of Man, I've written a guide to it called After Humanity. It's published by Word on Fire Academic. And if you go to Word on Fire Academics website and order After Humanity through them, then you automatically get a free copy of The Abolition of Man with a tie-in cover design. The, the HarperCollins who publish Lewis's books have, have kindly arranged a, a complementary edition of The Abolition of Man, which matches After Humanity. So go to wordonfire.org forward slash humanity and order after humanity there and and you'll get this 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 volume two books for the price of one <laughs>
but don't but don't try it through Amazon because I think through Amazon and other booksellers you won't get that tie-in edition. All right, great, and we'll link all of that in the show notes. Dr. Michael Ward, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. So it's been a pleasure for me too. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. I hope you found something useful. If so, I encourage you to put what you heard into practice. If you're interested in more podcasts, meditations, and courses on the art of living, consider checking out our daily newsletter, Perennial Meditations on Substack. Until next time, be wise and be well.